This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And good afternoon, good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. I'm Charlie Pelletin for Jonathan Farrow. He has got the day off. We are live on DAB Radio. Quick check of what's happening in markets. Just gone 5 p.m. in the city of London. Let us begin with European markets. The FTSE 100 today down one-tenth of one percent. CAC 40 in Paris, little change, down a point. That is a drop there of less than one-tenth of one percent. The DAX in Germany down eight, a drop there of one-tenth of one percent. And Spain's IBEX index advancing today by about four-tenths of 1%. The 10-year, the yield there, 2.31 in the U.S. The S&P 500 index trading lower, down a point now at 25.56, a drop there of one-tenth of 1%. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it is higher, up 23 points, uh, did take out 23 thousand uh, financial history being made there today for U.S. markets. Right now, the Dow is at 22,980, showing a gain right now of about one-tenth of one percent. NASDAQ is also close to a record. It is lower by two points. The NASDAQ Composite Index at 66.20. That is a drop there of less than one-tenth of one percent. Crude oil traded in the U.S. West Texas Intermediate Crude down nine-tenths of one percent, 51.41 a barrel. Brent crude is down eight-tenths of one percent, 57.36. UK inflation has hit 3% for the first time in more than five years. Consumer prices getting a boost uh, from food and transportation. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney reaffirming that the central bank is close to its first interest rate hike in more than a decade. One of the topics that we will be getting to uh, right here on the cable, but also want to begin with our top story. Brexit Secretary David Davis told lawmakers there are no plans to get up and walk away from from those deadlock talks with the European Union. Joining us now to talk about Brexit before we talk about some of the UK data, Christine Aquino, who is Markets Live, a blog editor for us for Bloomberg in London, Ken Vexler, director at Acumen Management. Uh, Christine, want to begin with you, and both of you, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, bring us up to date on Brexit, the story that keeps on going. Just how critical are these latest talks to what might happen in terms of getting an eventual outcome for Brexit. Kristen? Well, thanks, Charlie. And, you know, I'm sure that investors are, you know, kind of hanging on to um, all the EU and UK leaders, every word as far as this goes. And really what they're looking for is any sign of concrete developments throughout this whole process. And, you know, we might just be getting that now with some indications from the EU that they're possibly pushing for uh, some sort of uh, timeline by December of, of the talks. And, you know, anything that concrete that investors can hang on to is positive in terms of clarifying expectations on what the post-Brexit world is going to look like for the UK. Uh, Ken, of all the things you monitor in a day, where does Brexit stand at the top of your list with all that's going on in terms of economic data, earnings, geopolitical? What about Brexit? Uh, it's top of the list of noise, to be honest. I mean, as far as market reactions, we get algos that sort of jump at red uh, Bloomberg headlines for a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes at best, and then revert to uh, the tedium that we see elsewhere. So in all, and in its current uh, 
I suppose, form. Brexit doesn't really rate that highly on a day-to-day basis simply because we're not getting anywhere, neither neither in the negotiations nor any sort of concrete development. As a consequence, there's not much that you can really do around it at the moment. Ken, from my vantage point here in New York, I'm surprised to hear you say that, given all of the immense consequences that could happen as a result of Brexit, or perhaps that's already been priced into the market. Uh, look, it, it most certainly hasn't been priced in. What, what has been priced in is, is complete exhaustion. Uh, the, the outcomes or the potential consequences, it's not dissimilar to when we had the actual referendum. For what was a binary uh, event or a binary outcome, one of the legs of that outcome was completely, uh, you know, un- un- unknowable, if you will. I mean, that's not a word, but, you know, no one really knew what it could mean and therefore couldn't price it adequately. Uh, we're seeing the same thing here. We now know, obviously, that Brexit is underway, but no one knows the absolute direction that that's going to take. And as a consequence, you can't really price the consequences of what will happen if you don't know which way these uh, these talks are going to go and, and whether, will it be a hard Brexit, soft Brexit, how long the transition period, if any, what, what are the circumstances of that transition period and the like. So the market is, is just lethargic. It just can't seem to keep up and, and not sure it has to because we're not actually seeing anything new uh, develop on a daily basis. Christine, how unique is Ken in holding this view? Is Brexit uh, news or is it noise? You know, at this point, I think I agree with Ken that it's turned into a bit of a source of noise for markets just because, as he mentioned, the the lack of clarity and anything concrete in terms of the developments that we've seen so far. And whereas the referendum in the aftermath of it was was a big catalyst for, for market moves, you know, that was over a year ago. Uh, fa- fast forward to the following year, we're kind of in this sort of limbo situation where there's not much clarity. And I can definitely understand that investors um, everywhere are, in fact, uh, fatigued, as Ken mentioned, over just the trickles of news that we've seen. So really, for lack of anything else concrete from the the negotiations, I would agree that it is uh, unfortunately dismissed more as noise than signal these days. Uh, Ken, in your personal life, uh, to take off your market's hat for a moment, but in your personal life, attending cocktail parties on the tube ride home, <laughs> uh, riding, suburb- riding uh, the suburban train system, is, is Brexit a topic that still gets a great deal of conversation, or is this something that, as you suggest, people have gotten tired of? Well, I mean, I suppose I'm lucky enough to live in London, and yeah, here in London, it is it's still a fairly big topic because of the massive amount of uncertainty uh, for the many EU citizens that reside within London. So as a consequence, and being such a large and, and varied city, it is uh, constantly on uh, on people's minds, not least of which because of, as I said, the, the, the status of EU citizens going forward, but also the fact that, you know, the big banking industry and, and financial services industry that is based out of London, and, and it is, you know, in many ways the, the lifeblood of uh, of the city, um, the, the the uncertainty that that particular industry faces in the future for everyone that works in it, uh, as a consequence, you know, will they have jobs? A and B, will those jobs be 
situated in London or will it be Frankfurt or Amsterdam or Paris or, or even Dublin for that matter. Yeah, Christine, does that response really encapsulate, encapsulate perhaps the debate heading into Brexit, that this was all along perhaps a story that was London versus the rest of the nation when it comes to deciding uh, whether Britain should go or stay? Well, you could certainly make that argument. And definitely in the aftermath of the referendum last year, there were kind of narratives that were carved out as uh, a London versus the rest of the UK sort of thing. But, you know, even within London, if you kind of just do a survey of, say, 10 people walking around the city, you could get a whole host of different views on Brexit and whether it should have happened in the first place or now that we're here, what it should look like in the aftermath. And so, you know, the reality is there's really not a lot of consensus on uh, what exactly the deal should look like. There are varying opinions on what should be prioritized. And I think that's exactly Exactly the trouble that the negotiators are running into now. All right, stick around, the two of you, because we have got a lot more to talk about as the program continues. Want to talk about some of the latest uh, inflation data, and yes, also want to get into the Catalan crisis as well as we continue our conversation. Christine Aquino, Markets Live blog editor for us in London. Ken Vexler, director at Acumen Management in London, talking about the markets and a whole lot more right here on the cable. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow, uh, taking a look at what U.S. markets are doing. We've got the Dow up 23, trading at a record. Uh, slight pullback here for the S&P, down a point. NASDAQ lower by three. The FTSE 100 down one-tenth of one percent. The cable continues on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. The Cable continues. Happy Tuesday. Jonathan Farrow off today. Jonathan will be back tomorrow. You've got Charlie Pellet filling in today. And uh, our guests on the program uh, right now, Christina Kino, Markets Live blog editor for us in London. Ken Vexler, director at Acumen Management. Today we got uh, data showing that UK inflation hitting 3% for the first time in more than five years. Consumer prices boosted by the cost of food and transportation. Uh, Ken, so-called walking around inflation. What are you seeing anecdotally in the inflation numbers? Um, well, I think in real terms, uh, we're, we're probably above 3%, because if you go and do your average Tesco shop, you're probably paying north of about 5 or 7% uh, as to where you were uh, previously. You go and buy a piece of electronic equipment, a new laptop or the like, and you're paying even more. All of that makes sense, given that the currency is probably, well, now a bit less, but you know, near on 20% off uh, where it was a year ago. Uh, having said that, the BOE themselves have admitted that we're probably at the peak of the uh, currency depreciation-led inflation, and that should ideally look to dissipate uh, sort of going forward from here. Having said that, uh, real wages are not rising in any way, shape or form. And as a consequence, obviously, the real rate of inflation is getting hit on both ends of the equation, not only from the currency, but obviously as a consequence of, of uh, wages not keeping pace with rising prices. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, there is, not, without a, 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 any hesitation, there is inflation. And energy prices... I'm most certainly looking to uh, compound that problem. Yeah, if, if I heard you correctly, you said 5 to 7%, your belief. Why the discrepancy then between the number that you suggest that, uh, uh, that you're seeing in inflation and what the official government statistics are? Because, I mean, ultimately, like, like it is yeah, globally, the uh, ONS, 
basket of CPI goods will differ in, in broad terms, more or less, to your man in the street. So in real terms, when you factor in various other bits and pieces, including energy and the like, you are seeing north of about 5%. Also, as I said, when you factor in wages, uh, that also uh, adds to the overall situation whereby 3% probably isn't entirely representative of, of what is happening, you know, the man around walking around the street, as it were. Yeah, what about the woman walking around the street, uh, Christine, uh, that uh, that 3% official number versus the 5 to 7 that Ken uh, sees? Is that consistent with what you're seeing? Yes, I can definitely confirm just going outside of the office and trying to buy lunch from one of the food trucks. Uh, yes, I can definitely attest to that. And, you know, I think Ken's absolutely right in that consumers are getting kind of a double hit, both from the rise in goods and also the fact that wages have been keeping up with inflation, which is really kind of the main sticking point as far as a BOE tightening cycle goes, is that, you know, you have all this headline inflation, um, they're above target now for the eighth straight straight month, uh, above that 2% target for the BOE. But still, you know, wages haven't kept up. And actually, even today, when you look at the details of the report, while goods inflation, which is basically the prices of what you buy in stores, uh, have picked up, uh, it's really been kind of a stagnant and, and even lower uh, reading on the month and month for services inflation, yeah, which I, is, you know. Ken, I've only got a minute left. Unfortunately, a big question in a very short amount of time here. But how does all of this, the inflation data of affect Theresa May's government, or does Theresa May have other things to worry about beyond the latest inflation data? Yeah, so that's the issue. She, she genuinely does have uh, a lot of other things to worry about, but it seems as though the Tories are unable to focus on any one of those things, not to mention all of them. So as a consequence, uh, inflation and the underlying economic situation is sort of being handed off to the Bank of England, which finds itself caught between a rock and a hard place, and, and here we are. Yeah. All right. We will continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to switch gears, talk about Spain and Catalonia. Uh, we've got Ken Vexler, director at Acumen Management, with us uh, from London. Christine Aquino, Markets Live blog editor for us, also in London, checking U.S. markets. They're open up and running. We have got the S&P down a point, little change. The Dow keeps on going, another record there, up 25 points higher by one-tenth of one percent. Johnson & Johnson shares, they're up 2.3 percent today, also out with earnings. Netflix down 2.3 percent. FTSE 100 down one-tenth of one percent. This is Charlie Pelletin for Jonathan Farrow, and you're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. And we are back. I just want to keep that music going no matter how old, how young you are. That is a great song. Dexy Midnight Runners from back in the 80s. I love that song. Uh, two stories that are not going away. Brexit and Spain. Charlie Pelletin for Jonathan Farrow, by the way. Uh, we covered all here on The Cable. We were talking about Brexit, talking about UK inflation. And now on to another story that just seems to keep on giving. Brexit and Spain, obviously the two big stories. But Spain has cut its economic forecast for 2018 as the costs of the Catalan crisis begin to mount. And joining us now on the program, Christina Kino, Markets Live blog editor in London, Ken Vexler, director at Acumen Management. And uh, uh, first of all, these latest numbers, Ken, what do they suggest about the risks to the Spanish economy because of what is happening with Catalonia? Look, the, the risks are inherent and implied, meaning that there is potential for a slowdown domestically or from internal uh, 
procedural and, and then basically internal GDP. Tourism, uh, which uh, they depend on quite highly, probably shouldn't suffer, but it's only natural and it's probably quite, I suppose, adult of them, if you will, to uh, grade these numbers a little bit lower on the fact that they don't entirely know how they're going to proceed uh, in the coming months as far as whether this independence issue will really take hold, whether independence will actually happen or not. And as a consequence, they should brace, you know, for some potential downside. Further out, too early to, to tell, really, because, well, we don't know how this is going to develop. As a consequence, we can't really price what it means going forward. Yeah, Christine, I suppose it's worth backing up, too, and just explaining just how well, relatively well, the Spanish economy has been faring uh, up until all of this. Give us a sense of the turnaround that we have seen under Rajoy. Yeah, you know, it's been a bit of a remarkable recovery, really, for Spain, um, just under Rajoy and, and, you know, just coming out of the height of the European debt crisis just a few years ago. I mean, in terms of growth, Spain has one of the fastest growth rates in the euro area, 3.1% uh, real GDP year in year. That's kind of the, the highest among at least among the, the periphery countries, for sure. And, you know, inflation measures are doing good. Um, they also have better metrics for debt than Portugal and Italy. And so there are a lot of positives going for Spain. And so that's probably why, you know, investors didn't really seem to have priced the risks to Catalonia all that much, just because, you know, there is this, still this positive economic story that's propelling the country forward. Yeah, it, 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 Ken, it's funny because I'm on this side of the Atlantic, I talk to a number of people who say, you know, who are just shocked and surprised that this story, uh, quote, quote unquote, has come out of nowhere. In reality, this is a story that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You touched on the tourism, you touched on the commercial part of it. Worth explaining, I suppose, just why Catalonia is so important to the overall Spanish economy. Look, ultimately, I mean, you're right. It, it is it is a story as, as old as the hills, as it were, and it's a cultural thing more than more than anything else. Um, Catalonia, is an, Catalonia rather, is an incredibly wealthy uh, region, and not a small one at that. So, as a consequence, there's always been this push and pull of wanting to be self-governing, wanting to self-administer what they see as their own inherent wealth and be responsible for how that wealth is, uh, well, spent and, and split amongst its constituents. Now, obviously, being uh, a mass um, uh, contributor in terms of taxes and the like to the overall uh, nation, uh, the Rajoy government and, and previous governments haven't been too keen to let that go all of a sudden because what's that going to mean to the national coffers? So there, there's a lot at stake here, but having said that, a lot of it is... As, as many times the case, not only financial, but very much cultural. So that, that plays a large role in it all. Uh, Christine, why are investors beyond Spain so concerned about this? Why are they watching this so closely? Well, I think, Charlie, it's just another reminder of separatist movements that we've seen emerge out of Europe just in the past year. You know, we started with elections in France earlier this year, kind of giving rise to um, the right movement led by Marine Le Pen and, you know, similar movements that we saw in uh, the Dutch elections as well. Uh, 
and and so this is just another reminder of uh you know these factions that are kind of emerging from Europe where they may have previously been kind of on the fringes but seem to have become a bit more part of the mainstream spotlight in terms of uh, political parties this year. Yeah, Ken, do you want to add the uh, the Scottish independent movement to that? Uh no, I mean look, obviously that that plays a, a role in the overall idea of separatist movements within you know Europe and, and globally but I think there, there's there's an element here where uh, it probably differs a little bit but having said that there are similarities again there's there's oil wealth in Scotland there's a, a cultural uh, desire to be separate and have uh, their own parliament make decisions that affect the Scottish nation and the like so yeah there are similarities but I mean again you can draw similarities across all separatist movements with a common thread. Yeah, and where are we now, Ken, in the process? Rohe essentially has said no way. Uh, Puigdemont has said uh, we're out of here, absolutely positively, but let's talk. Essentially, does that sum it up? More or less. I mean, the last I heard, I think it was this morning, in fact, that given that um, Catalonia has essentially rejected whatever other secondary attempt at uh, reconciliation, that almost automatically triggers Article 155. Now, to be perfectly frank with you, I'm not up on uh, Spanish constitutional law, so I'm not sure what the next steps are. But right now, yeah, we're, we're pretty much, as you described it, none the wiser. Yeah. All right. Uh, Christine, very briefly, only about 20 seconds left again. Unfortunately, a big question, short amount of time. The Spanish stock market, the CAC, uh, the, uh, the DAC, uh, the uh, uh, IBEX 35, why is that showing such relatively strong year-to-date gains? You know, I think it's just a reflection of the strong Spanish growth story. And even though Catalonia is kind of a bit of a negative blip in the short term, I think investors do recognize the value in Spanish assets. All right. Uh, I want to thank you so much. And thank you for your brevity, by the way, Christy. Much appreciated. Markets Live blog editor in London. Ken Vexler, thank you so much for your knowledge. Thank you, sir, for your insight. And most importantly, thank you very much for making time uh, with us uh, uh, right here on the cable. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow. U.S. stocks are mixed. Uh, we We've got the Dow at a record. We've got more on U.S. markets coming up, as well as the search for the next Fed chair. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. The Cable continues on a Tuesday. Charlie Pelletin in for Jonathan Farrow. He's got one more day off back tomorrow. One way or another, we will get through it. We've got the Dow higher, trading at a record. S&P, NASDAQ uh, also uh, moving today close to records, but they are both lower. S&P in the U.S. down a point now, 25.56. We've got NASDAQ down about a point there. A little change on both, but uh, important to point out, another record for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We will be talking about that, updating you on what European equities are doing. FTSE 100 in London closed lower today by one-tenth of one percent. The CAC 40 in Paris, little change, down a point, down less than one-tenth of one percent. Germany's DAX index down one-tenth of one percent. And uh, in Spain, the IBEX 35, a topic we were just talking about uh, in context with Catalonia. Uh, today, the IBEX 35 up 35 points. That is a gain of 03 
5%. On now to our current topics as we discuss what is happening with the North American Free Trade Agreement and the ministers leading NAFTA negotiations set to ramp up the latest round of high-level talks after Canada and Mexico rejected what they see as hardline proposals by the United States. And joining us now to talk about it, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist here at Bloomberg, Vince Signorella, who follows currencies of forests here at Bloomberg. And Vince, I do want to begin with you. The result of these talks, you follow currencies closely. Mm-hmm. What reaction, if any, what happened uh, well, as, a, as a result today of NAFTA? Immediately as the news broke that said the negotiations were going to be pushed back by the, both um, the Canadians and the Mexicans, the, the loony weakened slightly, not as much. It doesn't get hit as hard on the NAFTA news as the Mexican peso. But the dollar mix went from somewhere around 19 up to the day's high, 1915. So it was a quick 15 big figure move. It settled all the way back down, trading back below where it all started as the news became a little bit clearer that yes, that Canada and Mexico were pushing back on the bold initiatives the Trump administration recently made, but that they are continuing negotiations. The original headline or the original news hit as if negotiations were breaking off, which is why it weakened dramatically. But now we're all back to where we were. All right. So back to where we were as for equity markets, Gina Martin-Adams, of all the things that investors focus on, and there are many right now, geopolitical concerns, uh, the daily tweet that may or may not come out of Washington, D.C., congressional deadlock, health plans. There, there's a lot going on. Where does NAFTA rank in that list of all the things that yeah. investors might have to consider? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of things to consider. It is one of many, but there is some evidence in the equity market that investors are actually focusing on this. We ran some work back in August on stocks that are most sensitive to the Mexican peso and the Canadian dollar and the S&P 500. And we did indeed find that the stocks that are most sensitive to the um, moves in those two currencies have actually underperformed the S&P 500 by a pretty substantial margin since the U.S. election. So investors are paying attention to this. The areas within the equity market that are most sensitive to trade with both Canada and Mexico are things like autos, machinery stocks, agriculture stocks, and the like. So there are certain groups that tend to move more viciously when NAFTA chatter arises. Uh, Vince, is she she right? Is this way beyond noise that this actually is news and investors, equity investors, fundamentally care about what's happening with NAFTA? Oh, she's completely correct. This is really a big deal. um, when you when you look at the auto manufacturers, for instance, and this is a major export for both countries, um, if you're putting in more and more, like what the U.S. said, something about 50% U.S. Uh, steel as to part of the production levels, you're, you're transferring a, a, a great amount of an export out of these two countries into the U.S., and both the equities and, and the currencies will react simply put, it's, it's a major, major, major deal. Let me make the case for noise. You've got Mexico and Canada repeatedly and publicly rejecting <clears throat> U.S. demands on dairy, autos, dispute panels, government procurement, and a sunset clause. Any time that one enters a negotiation, Gina, don't you adopt an extreme, or at least perhaps this is the strategy now from Washington, mm-hmm. don't you adopt an extremely hard position and negotiate from there, perhaps getting more than you had initially hoped for? Well, I think that that's the strategy of this administration, certainly. I don't know that that's been the strategy historically, <laughs> but that the certainly that's where seems I was going. to be the strategy <laughs> of this administration is to adopt a hard line and then negotiate from there. I, I think... 
investors are potentially questioning the efficacy of such a strategy and whether it will ultimately work in trade negotiations. You know, clearly we have a president that has pursued this strategy in the private sector for a very, very long time, but does that strategy you know, translate to the public sector in negotiating trade, in negotiating geopolitical relationships and the like. And that's a big question for the investment universe over yeah, the coming and, three years. And, and, and the reason why my, my question took the tone that it did is I saw Congressman Bill Pascrell on, on uh, Bloomberg Television. He was making the point that trade negotiations are moving quickly. I don't follow trade negotiations day to day. That's not the sense that yeah. I get. What, what, what's your sense about how rapidly all of this is moving? Yeah. Well, I think that when we work in the, the, the markets as your primary environment, quickly it takes on a different tone. <laughs> in Washington, quickly can take years, right? right? right. And uh, negotiations for NAFTA, um, as an example, took years during the Clinton administration. Um, and I, I think that you know, as far as the negotiations today can go, maybe they do seem to be moving relatively rapidly by Washington standards. It's a tough call because I, I think we're all conditioned based on market movements, which are a lot faster. We, we, right, because there are people who try trade in microseconds. Right. I, you know, maybe I watch markets in terms of seconds and minutes. And, and so, as you say, when things happen quickly, I'm talking minutes and seconds. Right. Yeah, and, your take? and just to point to what you were saying about, you know, the negotiations with Washington, how markets are reacting should point out that the dollar is 14% lower against the peso since the, its highs in, in early or late January, early February, where dollar max was over 22. So now it's at 19. So even with the fears now of NAFTA, the fears are not as, as large as they were earlier in the year. The markets are taking things in stride and realizing, number one, for Canada, we do have bilateral trade negotiations on the books if NAFTA fails. And with Mexico as well, it's a major trading partner in the United States. It's simply just not going to go away. We're going to come to a, a mutually agreeable solution. All right, this next question may either get groans or howls of protest, but let me ask you both because it goes well beyond your wheelhouse. NAFTA, is this going to wind up being blown up entirely or at the end of the day when all is said and done, we'll, we'll have the, the current agreement with some, deg some degree of tweaking? Gina? I think the most realistic scenario and probably the scenario that is being implied in market prices is that you most likely have tweaks to the existing package. However, there is are days in which the fear that the whole thing blows up does engulf equity market performance. And one of those days was potentially yesterday uh, and earlier this year, right after the election last year. So I, I think that you have these days in which we try to price in the worst case scenarios and then we backpedal from those and, and, from those days. And that goes as, back to the earlier yeah. point about, about taking a tough negotiating stance and, and, and right. bargaining from there. Right. There still is a lot of uh, some fear that the worst case scenario can play out, but your most likely most likely outcome of all this is tweaks to the existing. All package. right, Vince. Uh, what she said. <laughs> all, right, all right, and we move on. <laughs> all right, well, coming up in the next topic, uh, I, I do want to uh, start getting into the Federal Reserve. Certainly, a lot going on there, just in terms of who President Trump may select uh, uh, for the next chair of the Federal Reserve. And perhaps the better question—well, it's an obvious question if you're listening to us—why uh, markets would care about that selection? Yes, a lot at stake. We will have more coming up uh, as the cable continues on a Tuesday here. Uh, Charlie Pellet, along with Gina Martin Adams. Uh, 
of Bloomberg. And also we've got Vince Signorella with us uh, talking about what is happening with currencies. You are listening to the cable U.S. equities mix. The Dow at a record up 19, up one-tenth of one percent. S&P, NASDAQ, they are both lower right now. Gold down $9 the ounce, a drop there of seven-tenths of one percent. And West Texas Intermediate Crude down eight-tenths of one percent. And checking the spread with Brent. Brent crude 5743, uh, WTI 5145. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Charlie Peloton for Jonathan Farrow, and uh, the music certainly begs the question, who is coming up at the Federal Reserve? Investors are betting on a Federal Reserve run by economist John Taylor would mean higher rates, despite his signaling that he would be more flexible in setting monetary policy than his academic work suggests. And back with us on the program, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg, Vince Signorella, a Global Macro Strategist for Bloomberg. Obviously, a lot at stake here at uh, uh, in this selection process, and uh, perhaps too early to bet on who might wind up getting the job. But Vince, uh, first of all, your thoughts. Why, why do markets care about this? Ultimately, at the end of the day, why does it matter whether it's Janet Yellen or anybody else? Well, the way the markets are trading and betting is that if you get somebody like a John Taylor who's was decidedly or appears to be decidedly more hawkish, you'd see bond yields climb, uh, potentially hitting the equity market. So there's a lot of money at stake. Um, whether you get the stay the course yelling, something maybe perhaps more dovish in the way of Powell or something more hawkish in the way of Taylor. And the markets are, are positioning, or at least so it appears, uh, and betting on one or the other. And with that lean is, is where the future goes for financial markets, or so people seem to think. Uh, Gina, what's the sense about the job that, uh, that Janet Yellen has, has done? Why wouldn't she get to keep her job? Well, the market sense of Jan- Janet Yellen's job is phenomenal, right? It's been an incredible ride record for Janet record. Yellen, but the market doesn't always make the decisions. The president makes the decisions. I mean, I think um, you know each president wants to have a certain, be able to make a certain mark, and the Federal Reserve is an opportunity for the president to make a mark and have some influence to some degree, as much as it is in an independent organization. It's pretty clear that the presidents historically have been able to appoint who they'd like to the role. So this is, in a sense, just another opportunity for this president to um, make a mark. And, you know, do they take the legacy leader or not? I mean, most presidents elect to find their own. All right. right? So, let, let, so I think that that's a lot of it. Let me try to lay this out as a, as a logic prog- uh, problem here. We have got U.S. equity markets trading at records. Mm-hmm. Many investors suggest that Janet Yellen has helped fuel the records that we see day after day. Donald Trump has linked his presidency. He's talked about it almost every single press conference, how well the markets are doing. Why wouldn't he want to continue that then with the woman who many suggest has made that happen? It's a good question, and I think if I could get in the mind of Donald Trump, I could probably tell you. But I you might never get you out. Know, of I, I don't think I could get. I, can, I don't think I can leap in there. Well, um, let, you know, I I do think that there is a solid case to be made for trying to keep Yellen on. There's also a question mark as to whether or not Yellen would want to continue on as Fed chair after leaving a pretty solid legacy. You know, you like to go out on top. Right. And, it can only go down always, from here. You're, you're, you could always yeah. argue that she's successfully steered. Uh, the economy through several rate hikes, as well as now, you know, push the markets toward an expectation for quantitative tightening. And we'll go through that process over the next few months before her 
would-be successor comes into office. So, you know, there's a there's a pretty strong case to be made that, you know, it's not going to get much better from here. It's only going to get tougher as the cycle ages. So maybe now's a pretty good time to depart and depart with cheers. Well, let, let me suggest and, or let me ask uh, Vince, does, do you think Janet Yellen wants out? Do you think she wants to leave on the high note, as Gina has suggested? That's an even better question than I think what you asked Gina. I mean, there's she has to be torn as, as to, uh, as Gina just said, leaving on a high and leave, you know, like bowing out with accolades. Um, but at the same time, you would imagine that she'd want to see the process through if she could to be sure of a, of a soft landing for all of this and not create uh, the, the type of um, the the type of insanity the markets may may project if you see a you know a very rapid decline in the fed's balance sheet and a very rapid rise in interest rates she may want to see that through all right we will continue the conversation about the selection of the fed the process uh, and uh, who just might wind up being the next fed chair you are listening to the cable uh, charlie pellet in for jonathan farrow on a tuesday here stocks trading at records at least the s p close to a record it's the dow that uh, broke through twenty three thousand, pulling back a little bit now twenty two thousand nine hundred seventy nine up by one tenth of one percent this is the cable on bloomberg dab this is the cable with jonathan farrow on bloomberg radio the Cable continues on a Tuesday. Charlie Paladin for Jonathan Farrow. Jonathan is back tomorrow, Bloomberg Radio and Television. Uh, you've got me uh, right now with uh, stocks trading at uh, close to a record on the S&P. The Dow up 19, did break through 23,000 today. 22,976, up one-tenth of one percent. And we have got gold uh, down $9.39, a drop there of seven-tenths of one percent. WTI, oil traded in the U.S., down seven-tenths of one percent. Brent, uh, 57.45. A drop there of six tenths of one percent. Our conversation continues with Gina Martin Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg, Vince Signorella, Global Market Strategist at Bloomberg, covering a range of topics. And uh, right now, we continue our conversation about the U.S. Federal Reserve. And uh, Gina, the question for you is: is just how much credit? Should President Trump be giving Janet Yellen for the stock market successes? Something that he talks about frequently, something that he takes great pride in, record after record, Janet Yellen should get the credit. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a really good, you make a really good point, Charlie, because when you look at how monetary policy has certainly contributed to the equity market, I mean, we've even been through a really interesting experience over the last two years where monetary policy has been tightening and yet equity multiples have been rising which is very anomalous. Normally, when the Fed reverses course, you see some multiple contraction on the index and valuations fall a little bit. And we haven't seen that. So it's pretty clear that the Fed maintaining this very easy, very accommodative, but also very well communicated path of policy has contributed to the market. Now, whether or not Donald Trump acknowledges that or if he thinks that the market is rising because he is in office is a whole nother philosophical discussion. <laughs> but I do think that the Fed deserves some credit for maintaining this very consistent pace and really convincing investors that they are they have things under control from the a monetary Vince, perspective. If, if, if Janet Yellen doesn't get the job, mm -hmm. care to speculate about the words that President Trump will use basically for Janet Yellen's send-off. Does he invite her to a press conference, give her a big warm hug, and say, what a wonderful job? How do you think he says, 
Essentially, you're fired. How, how did you say that? In a nice way. I, I think he I think he would be polite. She's she's she is anything but someone you have to admire, and uh, it would be silly of him to do anything less. Um, and I'm sure he would thank her for her service. And what a remarkable um, comeback the economy has made. And without him, she'd be nowhere. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know. But again, as I, I I'm think he would be extremely wise and to, to reappoint her the way, uh, as Gina said, having turned the corner on monetary policy markets. I, for one, was very much in the camp that when the Fed reduces their balance sheet, and if they do not do it carefully, could create havoc for these markets because when the biggest buyer turns into a seller, and you can argue that point of whether they're selling paper, but if they're not buying it, they're selling it, um, and, and they shrink that balance sheet, the opportunity for the markets to run and scurry and, and see a very steeper yield curve and undermine the, econ the economy is very real. And they have communicated their very, very slow gradual pace to the point where they've got markets almost in a fog and, and, and not worried about it at all. In fact, the two tens uh, narrowed to their lowest, uh, to the narrowest spread in, in 10 years. So that, talk about communicating to markets not to panic. That's brilliant. And it would be wise to stay that course. Now, I want to talk about specific names because an interesting story that just came over the Bloomberg here, a person familiar with the process says that President Trump plans to choose his nominee uh, be, before he leaves November 3rd on an 11-day trip to Asia. That's roughly in, in line with the two or three-week time frame that, uh, that he promised uh, two or three weeks ago. But some of the names on the list, uh, Kevin Warsh, John Taylor, Jerome Powell, Gary Cohn, and, of course, Janet Yellen. We talked a great deal about uh, uh, Janet Yellen. One of the other names that uh, that interests me on the list, Gary Cohn. Vince, any thoughts about Gary Cohn as to whether, you know, he's obviously a Trump administration insider. Uh, pros, cons, why wouldn't he get the job? I, I, there's been speculation that he wouldn't get the job because the Trump is still angry with him for his uh, remarks after um, the— In North, Virginia. In, yeah. And— um, and that could be true. I mean, we, we've seen the president hold a grudge, if you will, for a very long time. Um, and, and, you know, when you think about it, he's uh, of the lot. He's the non-academic, shall we say. Um, and it, historically, the Fed chair has gone to an academic. So perhaps his odds are even lower because of that. Uh, but, you know, the markets would seem to like him. And I don't think they'd, they'd react negatively to his, to his choice. Um, but, I, but I think he's probability-wise, his odds are quite low, at least in my opinion, well below those of Yellen even. All right. Well, well uh, in terms of the betting scale then, Gina, obviously higher up on the list and probably John Taylor. That's a name that's right. attracted a lot of attention past couple of days. Falls into the academic camp that Vince was talking about. Your thoughts? Care to bet? Care to speculate? You know, I think that John Faber is today's favorite candidate because he's been in the news. He most recently met with President Trump. Reportedly, the president was impressed with him. But a week ago, we were talking about Kevin Warsh in the same manner. The week before that, we were talking about Powell as the same manner. He, to me, he's the flavor of the week. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's any particular leader at this moment in time. And I'm, I'm not sure that, you know... Any of them would necessarily would necessarily be the a bad choice. I oh. think they're all very well qualified candidates. So you know, I think that the 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 truth is that the real question mark is whether or not Yellen is reappointed to the position, 
or if it's somebody else. All right. Because well, somebody else, no matter who it is, does infuse <laughs> a degree of uncertainty. Okay, limited, uh, only less than a minute left, so very briefly on this next response here. But when we get that announcement, if it does happen according to the person we talked to on November 3rd, Vince, market reaction, what happens one way or the other, regardless of who the choice is, as long as it is not Janet Yellen? I think if it's not Janet Yellen, you see a slight hiccup with the markets. I don't think it'll be drastic unless it is the tailor most hawkish. Um, and then I think we go back to the way we were. And, G- me. <coughs> and Gina, your response? Yeah, I would agree. I think the working assumption is that no matter who is elected, they most likely pursue the same policies, at least in the short run. We need to look for who also is going to be on the board over the year. That's going to be important going into 2018, who is also supporting the Fed chair. When Jonathan Farrow returns, that should be his first topic because that's a big topic that we neglected for the past 30 minutes here. Thank you very much to the two of you. Always a pleasure. You make my job easy, and I appreciate that. Jonathan Farrow returning tomorrow as the cable will continue. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg, Vince Signorella, Global Macro Strategist for Bloomberg. I'm Charlie Pellet. Stocks mix the Dow at a record. The cable continues right here on DAV.